Well, let's, let's get started. Let me open us up in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for gathering us here this morning. Thanks that we can take a look at your temple and um, the furniture within it and how all of, all of those things uh, teach us more about Jesus. We pray that this would be a worshipful, worshipful experience and that we would learn more. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so we are in our third uh, thing in our series. Uh, we're going through a series right now talking about... Uh, the temple and the tabernacle and how all those things point to God's dwelling place. Uh, there's, do you guys have enough? I have more. Oh, we have more. Oh, I took two on accident. I apologize. <laughs> okay, um, and so just to review, uh, if you guys, for, for some of you guys who are new, um, so if you guys remember the Old Testament, uh, timeline. The Exodus happened here in 1445, Moses, right? And then while they're in the desert, do you guys remember what God gives to the people, the instructions? It's a, it's a portable sanctuary. Do you guys remember what it was called? Tabernacle? The tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle was like this tent that uh, people would like make. <coughs> it's a holy of holies and... Um, and then there's like an altar right here and washing basin. Anyway, so this was like a tent um, that people would come and worship in, and then the tribes would settle around it. And then, you know, like the cloud of fire and the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud would like move around, and then the people would, as it moved around, they would follow it and then set up the tabernacle. And so for the for the longest time, the tabernacle, this portable tent, was the place of worship. Um, up until like right here. So this is where, and then we talked about you know all the, and we'll talk some more about it. But we talked about how like the tabernacle, a lot of it evoked imagery of the Garden of Eden, and how it was this idea of that we were going back into God's presence. And then two weeks ago we talked about how uh, no, it goes all the way over here. Actually, the tabernacle. Uh, two weeks ago, do you remember what we talked about? This new thing. It's right there. It's at the, title. <laughs> yeah. the temple, yes. It's very good. Very smart. Uh, and so the temple was a more permanent structure that... Um, more permanent thing of the tabernacle, right? And it was much bigger. There's a lot of gold. There's pictures if you guys want to check it out. Uh, and so we talked about, you know, like the significance of the temple and all these things. But today we're going to focus on the the furniture within the temple. Um, but before we get started, any questions about anything? Is that clear? Thank you, Priscilla. Uh, <laughs> all right. In that case, let's uh, let's get started. Um, so we're going to start, there's three, there's three areas to the temple, the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and so we'll get, we'll start with the courtyard. Um, let's see, Wade, can you read, oh, what's the first one? <laughs> the sacrificial altar, can you just read that? Exodus 27, you shall make the altar of Akakaya wood. Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall over it lay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes. 
and shovels and basins and forks and fires, fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. And then Second Chronicles. Mm-hmm. He made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Right, and that, uh, the sacrificial altar, this is one of the things that was both in the tabernacle and in the temple. So this is coming out the courtyard right here. Um, and so this was the altar and altar here again. And I think most of us understand what the sacrificial altar was for to sacrifice animals. Eric Cho. Um, and so the idea that, uh, and this idea of an altar, the idea of needing to sacrifice animals or burning carcass, uh, carcasses was um, very early on embedded in the people's minds, right? The idea that in order to enter into God's presence before they could go further, that they had to atone for their sins. Um, and so there's like an animal here. Uh, and then like... Chicken? Take. The animal would die, <laughs> and the and the uh, the blood was like smeared on these horns and stuff like that, and then they could enter, right, and then worship. Um, yeah, so the altar is a little bit more uh, basic. Any questions? Let's go on. Can you read the next part about bronze, bronze basin? Yeah. Uh, he also made ten basins in which to wash, and set five on the south side and five on the north side. In these they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea was for the priests to wash in. Yeah, so so the courtyard, there's like not too much detail with that. We'll spend more, more of our time in the other stuff. But the basins over here are for like, um, to wash like the animal parts it says, right? Uh, the idea that... It's just part of a ritual. They had to like ceremonially cleanse the animals um, before they could sacrifice it. Uh, oh yeah, we're just gonna fly through this first part, and then the next. Hannah, can you read the, the sea? Yeah. Then he made the sea of Castello. It was round ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. It stood on 12 oxen, 3 facing north, 3 facing west, 3 facing south, 3 facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were in it. It held 3,000 baths. Yeah, and so 3,000 baths is like, oh, I forgot to write it down, but it's like something like 12,000 gallons. So it's, it's huge. Uh, but the idea that, um, so the significance of the temple we talked about two weeks ago was that um, it really represented that that God has finally established the people of Israel, right? So between Saul and David around here, um, in 2 Samuel 6, you can read more details if you want. Um, We talked about how up until now, the tabernacle was this portable tent. And after this point, God had finally given rest to David from the surrounding nations, like the Philistines and the Canaanites. And so this is the point at which... David wants to build a temple, but God doesn't let him, and he says that Solomon is going to be the one. Because this marked a new era, right? The era over here was God um, conquesting, uh, God's conquest in the promised land. And over here is the point at which God had given them rest. And so the reason why that's significant is because the sea, a lot of times in the Bible, is represented as uh, this like... Uh, chaos or is represented as like something that is right, right here something that is like 
God's rival, and God has to fight it and control it. Do you guys remember any examples in the Bible of where God is like controlling the sea or like subduing it? There's a couple. This is trivia. Genesis one. Huh? Genesis one. Yeah, Genesis one, right? Uh, where there was uh, Genesis one when Jesus is calming the sea. Um, Anyway, there's a lot, right? Well, I mean, on a practical note, right, Palestine is right next to this big sea called the Mediterranean Sea. And <clears throat> it's, it's uh, we think of it as like a pleasure um, cruises and so forth, but it was actually a very scary ocean. Mm -hmm. And people died, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so this idea that this huge basin of water outside the temple. Um, it's very subdued. It's very calm. Um, that God, it kind of represents that God, again, has like um, brought rest or has established the people in the land, has controlled this sea. Um, and then the second purpose we read earlier, um, it talked about how this was also uh, the place where the priests could wash in. So they take showers in here. Ceremonial washings. Um, let's go on. Uh, and then the last part. Uh, could you read, <laughs> Ashley, the one about bronze pillars? Uh, in front of the house, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars. And he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north. Uh, that on the south he called Jachin, and that on the north, Boaz. Okay, um, so really quick, Jachin and Boaz. Uh, it means, Jachin means, by his, or he has established... And Boaz means by history. Um, so there are these giant bronze pillars right outside the temple. And I, I think, again, like it it's adds to that sense of permanence, that adds to that sense of, of being established, of being, I don't know, like settled. Right? And then even by the name he has established by his strength uh, would add to that whole idea for the worshippers, for the Israelites, that God has brought rest from their surrounding enemies. Um, yes. And then, oh, and then we talked about uh, the pomegranates on the top. Uh, we're gonna t we'll talk more about this, but uh, there's, throughout the temple, we see all these arboreal features. Arboreal meaning like, like plant-like. Right, so plants, like, we'll read more, but uh, there's like pomegranates and all these things. Um, and then that, uh, again, it's supposed to evoke this idea of, uh, we're, this is supposed to be like the Garden, right? the Garden of Eden. Okay, any questions so far about stuff from the outer courtyard? I know it's not as detailed. There's, a lot of it is like really speculative, um, the commentaries, and so I don't want to go too much into... So the so there's two bronze pillars, they're like these giant tree-like structures, right? Mm -hmm. And like pomegranates are hanging on them. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to be like 
they're not just like architectural, <coughs> uh, what do you call it, load-bearing structures. Where's Ashley? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's like nothing like on top. There's nothing that needs these things. They're to be purely symbolic because they're, they're they're showing like there's the, there's these two trees covered with pomegranates, and you're entering <coughs> into what will later, when you actually go inside, will be an explosion of this um, plant theme, right? Mm -hmm. and, th and they're all made of bronze. Can you explain that? Oh yeah. So um, the bronze is compared to inside. There's all this gold. Uh, but bronze is not as shiny. It's more earthy. And so I think it's supposed to contrast the difference between uh, the, the <coughs> perfect or like the presence of God here and then the earthiness out here. Um, it's, it's, I, it's not just that bronze is worth less than the gold. It's something else. Uh, it's, I mean... In the garden, there's a lot of gold. Yeah, gold represents the presence of God. Because in Genesis 1... Um, actually, Genesis 2, in the description of the garden, there's gold everywhere. And so, you only have gold inside the temple. And outside the temple, there's no gold. It's bronze. And uh, so, it's, it's to create that sharp contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, stellar. Solomon's certainly rich enough to have provided everything lavishly in gold. So, it's not a question of of, oh, we ran out of gold. What's the next most precious thing? Platinum. No, I mean, it's, 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 there's deep symbolism there. And then, and then outside the courtyard, of course, there's nothing. There's no, I mean, it's just common court, common people living. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to evoke layering. Mm -hmm. right? You come into the courtyard, you, everything is bronze, which by itself, that's already fairly um, um, impressive. But you go inside the temple and everything is solid gold from, from ceiling to foot. So. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? That'll come into play with the last lesson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael's doing the last lesson next week on the New Jerusalem and New City. And now everything is fulfilled in, the, in that. Okay, let's go into the, the inner, the holy place. <clears throat> It gets a little better. Um, so let's see. Dan, can you read the paragraph from Exodus 25? The holy under the menorah. Yes. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. It shall be made with all of these utensils out of talent of pure gold. So thank you. Um, and so we talked about how in the temple there was only one tabernacle. Uh, sorry, in the tabernacle there was only one menorah, uh, and yet when we come to the temple, there's like it intensifies, right? We talked about that. Uh, the, how all the symbols are um, being exponentially intensified in the temple, uh, but. Uh, but the menorah, what is this supposed to be? Uh, and we talked about how, first of all, it's made out of a talent of gold, which is like 75 pounds of pure gold, 24 carats, right? And that's kind of worth a lot. And then there's 10 of them. And the idea that this, um, let's see. Yeah, if you if you read the details, it, it talk, it, again, there's like this arboreal uh, language to it. It's flowers, it's branches. It's I think it talks about... Um, uh, in another passage, it talks about how it's uh, modeled after the almond tree. 
And so it, it's supposed to evoke, we talked about how it's supposed to talk about um, the tree of life that was in the garden initially. Uh, that as people are going back, uh, it would remind them of this giant tree that they weren't allowed to partake of. Um, and again, it's covered with gold. And we talked about how in Eden, uh, there was, it was a land filled with gold. And so it's, it evokes this image. So you're supposed to be in like a, in a forest of gold trees. Yeah. <laughs> forest of gold trees. And then there's like a couple other things that we can talk about. The idea that it gives light, right? Because um, it's it's, there's no lights coming in. There's no windows. And so, there, I mean, it, there, it evokes another passage where God talked to Moses in a burning bush. Um, that, again, this might represent for the people. Uh, it might remind them that God's presence is there. And it was supposed to stay lit all through the night, 24 hours. Uh, and so just the idea that God is constantly with them, that they're constantly being watchful. These are lights. And so, yeah, the, the, the lampstand, the menorah would have evoked this rich idea of God's presence of being in the garden. Any questions? Oh, the, you know, I read a couple of there's different seven, things. So there's a total of seven lights. Mm-hmm. Seven. Uh, seven is kind of a number of completion, right? Um, um, uh, like the Genesis 1 account, there are seven days. Um, so seven is a number of, of completeness um, <coughs> and, uh, and, and, and uh, blessing and fulfillment. And, and, and so you have seven, seven light sources. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of different guesses out there, but I think that's one that's pretty um, standardly held. What did you ask about the branches now? Oh, that, that's where it was. Oh, that was it? The lights? No. Yeah, these are supposed to be like branches, kind of. Sweet. Okay. Um, let's go on to the incense altar. Well, I think, I think it's, yeah. it is interesting because, I mean, like, it's not the most, um, I don't know, we can ask again Ashley. Yeah, interior designer. But, I mean, that's not the most, um, I don't know, form meets function kind of like efficiency, right? Like if I, if, if someone, if I were to say, okay, there's going to be this room with no windows, we need it to be lit. Can you create some lampstands? How about this, right? <laughs> this, this very odd structure with like uh, uh, the light sources coming out mm-hmm. in that way. It's a really bizarre lampstand. It has, it, it violates... Um, efficiency and the reason why is because it's not supposed to be purely a lampstand it's supposed to evoke a tree and of course the little carvings that there are flowers on it mm-hmm. it's supposed to it's supposed to give it away yeah, yeah. that's a flower on the lampstand um, yeah and again like for the people as they were they would have immediately seen like when they walked in that this is not normal that it looks like because there's uh we talked about this last week so we, or two weeks ago but if you even if you look at the carvings along the wall there's like all these like <coughs> palm trees and all these like uh flowers on the wall and on this pillar sorry this is getting kind of messy but on the pillars uh on the walls on the doors uh, there's like an explosion of plant life everywhere uh, and including these things that look like trees made out of gold and fire and lights coming out of it. Um, and again, 
yeah, we, so it's providing light, it's providing um, a lot of different good things. Um, okay, let's go on to the incense altar. Uh, Tyler, could you read that? Yeah. Yeah, you can see it on the picture, right? The, um, the palm trees and, and the uh, plant life carvings. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me, like this was really f- interesting because all my life, <laughs> when I was a kid, just being taught about the temple, no one ever talked about the um, the plant motifs, you know. And uh, when I finally, uh, it was you know, we were reading and studying this, it just like really stuck out to me that the temple isn't supposed to be just a mere building. It's supposed to be a garden within the building. It's a temple garden, and it's evoking Eden. It's evoking presence of God, when God walked with Adam and Eve, and I was like, oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and like, just uh, because we, we mentioned this uh, previously, but we talked about how, um, again, to talk about like the garden imagery, that whenever you entered, you would always have to enter in from the east, uh, that when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, they were exiled eastward so when they as they're coming back into the either into the tabernacle or into the temple they're always entering in from the east uh, and again it's just like there's all these like little details that um, the gold or the the plant life all these things that are uh, that would remind the Israelites that they are not just going to some temple that somebody built but they are going back into the presence of God that he has given them directions on how to build it so that they can enter into fellowship with him uh, and so we're just yeah so there's so many <laughs> details um, but let's go on uh, the incense altar, okay, the incense altar yeah. Exodus 31 you shall make an altar on which to burn incense you shall make it of acacia wood a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth um, it shall be uh, square and two cubits shall be its height its horn shall be of one piece uh, with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides, and its horns. Cool. Um, so the incense altar was this thing that priests would come and they would burn <coughs> incense on it. Uh, and it would, there were two purposes for it. Uh, the first purpose um, was, first of all, um, Right here, there's like a bunch of like dead animals that are being burnt, and so the the smell would have alone been really bad, and so the incense it's it's a sweet smelling thing. It's practically helpful uh, for the priest, uh, but there's another way. There's a couple different ways to uh, see it. Uh, the first is that uh, as the animals are being burnt, there's all this smoke rising up. Uh, and if you guys remember, like some of the language in the Bible, it talks about how like when God smelled uh, the burnt offerings it was a pleasing smell to him and so kind of this idea that as like the smoke is rising up here um, over here in God's temple and his throne it's the sweet smelling thing uh, so people are like uh, so God is enjoying it <laughs> not that God has a nose but it again to him it would have been a sweet uh, smelling thing uh, and then the second purpose is that this this incense as it was being burnt uh, would create this dark cloud almost it would create a cloud um, and if you if you know about the day of atonement that one day 
a year when the high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. As it entered in, it would uh, the high priest would bring in this censer with um, incense in it. And as it brought it in, it would cover, it would fill this room with... What's a censer? Can you... A censer, C-E-N... S-E-R. It's basically you a see, container. Catholic priests have it. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I just looked it up, and it just said it's a container where you... It's a portable incense carrier. Yeah. An Is incense it that carrier. thing where they, like, swing around? That's, there you go. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but if you've seen, like, Catholic priests, right, the, the, the censer, it, like, emits a lot of plumes of smoke. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I don't know that. Um... Oh yeah, but in any case, um, as it filled this room with this dark cloud, um, the priests wouldn't even be able, they weren't allowed to look at the ark. Um, so it would fill, again, the room with smoke. And then as they were doing their thing of like, you know, praying and sprinkling the ark with the blood, they wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, and I think there's a couple reasons why, right? Like the first reason is that God's presence is oftentimes uh, signified with like the shrouding of a cloud um, in the throughout the Bible, right? Like, where God was leading the people throughout the desert in a pillar of cloud, or God meets Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples, and he's in a cloud. Or it talks about how Jesus was taken up in a cloud and he's going to come back on clouds of fire, right? Like the idea that God, um, or like if you guys know the other stories of like God's kind of glory when it comes and rests in the tabernacle in the temple, it's always in like this cloud, right? Like he, his presence is shrouded, he can't, he can't be known. And so the altar of incense uh, also provided that idea that God's presence was in the temple, and that there was this cloud uh, hanging over this area. Yeah, I think like, you know, if you remember the Exodus story, right, right about Mount Sinai, and then there was, um, when Moses goes up, there's this big cloud, right, because it's shrouding God's presence. Um, and we know that the temple is on a mountain as well, Mount Zion. And so there's this, there's the cloud again. Cloud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the incense altar would have been significant, both for practical and like, spiritual reasons. Okay. Let's let's move on um, to the table of the bread of the presence. Can you, Cho? Yeah. Shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make it, um, its plate and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls uh, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat um, it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's fruit offering, a perpetual due. Thanks. Okay, so there's this bread inside the temple. And every Sabbath day, uh, the priest, or the day before the Sabbath, the priests were supposed to bake bread and then replace this, and then they were supposed to eat the old bread. And there were 12 loaves of bread, right? We read. I don't know if that detail was added. Um, but there was 12 loaves of bread on this table. And the 12 loaves uh, are, are symbolized the 12 tribes, right? Of Israel. The idea that the, these tribes are in this, inside the temple, that they're 
being cared for uh, by God. Uh, but another reason uh, that's that's interesting is that a lot of times in the ancient world, uh, the way you were close to someone, the way you signified your friendship or uh, fellowship with someone was through sharing meals, right? Uh, that meals was an important thing. You didn't just... Nobody ate fast food back then. Uh, they all ate with people who were really important. And so the idea that God wants to share a meal with people, and yet this meal can only be partaken of by certain people with special restrictions, uh, that even though this meal is being offered by God to people, that only the Levitical priests, uh, after you know going through the ceremonial washing and cleansing, could then come and eat it. Uh, that they couldn't just come and fellowship with God lightly or according to their own terms but that they had to follow God's protocol um, so this idea would have emo- evoked again like this idea of like intimacy yet separation from God um, and then I la- think that, that's yeah. a really important concept the push pull of the temple and one way God is pulling his people saying I want to be with you come into my presence and yet he keeps saying don't come too close he has these layers of security. You can only be uh, a priest to go inside the temple. Only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. And so at the same time, it's evoking the Garden of Eden. I think, Yvonne, we talked about this a, a few weeks back, right, where um, normal Israelites would never see any of this imagery, right? And it's so strange, right? All this work done to which people cannot see. And so that kind of um, tension is important because it's telling us something about how the story resolves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we know like ultimately the story is going to resolve itself in Christ, that Christ is the one who says that he is the bread of life, that he is the one that comes and gives, gives his flesh to people, right? He says, uh, if you don't eat my flesh, then you can't be in communion with me. Um, and so, yeah, all those things are ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, but again, this idea that uh, bread and again, like the bread also would have evoked for the Israelites, because right now, because uh, the bread was even in here, right, the table of bread, and so for at least these forty years while they're in the desert, they're still receiving manna from God, right? And so um, the idea that God is the one who is ultimately providing the mater- the material or like physical necessities um, that uh, He provided for them, and ultimately how the bread also. Sit- symbolizes not just material blessing or material provision, but spiritual um, provision right, through Christ. And so, the, yeah, the table of the bread of the presence uh, containing the bread. Any questions about this or the menorah or the incense altar so far, the inner sanctuary? Sorry, I should have printed more. I, I told you. I know, Michael, <laughs> Michael was like, you have little so faith. little faith. <laughs> Um, so, so, so this, 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 the table of the bread of presence is such a fancy word, but another way you could think of it is like a dining table, mm-hmm. and and we're eating with God. Yeah, and um, you know, in a typical home, there would have been things like incense or perfume. Uh, there would have been things like lights or food, and so this is supposed to, in some ways, evoke this idea of like a home. It's God's abode, right? We've been talking about that this whole time. Um, throughout the series. Okay, let's go on to the the Holy of Holies. And so in the Holy of Holies, there's two things, right? Uh, Tony, can you read um, Exodus 25? Sure. Uh, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. 
Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it. Can I ask a question about the acacia wood? Is this like... What is acacia wood? Um, it's wood from the acacia tree. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Clearly you didn't study in biology. Um, <laughs> what I read on the commentaries, it just said it's some kind of like precious or expensive wood. Okay. Uh, I don't know anything beyond that. Do you have... No, I don't know. I don't know. Is, is, do we still have acacia wood? Does anyone know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Acacia wood, really? Yeah. Acacia flowers. Uh, Acacia <laughs> namu. Okay. Um, okay, so yeah, this Ark of the Covenant. Um, and this is something that was like really important throughout the life, the history of Israel, right? Uh, and it, can, it has two significance. Can you actually read? Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, a chest. <laughs> And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you, and uh, be represented God's presence. Uh, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey, to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, whenever they set out for from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee you before you. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant was this golden chest thing. <coughs> it's a chest. Um, and in the chest, there was the, the, what is it called? Tablets of the Testimony? The Testimony. Uh, and basically, this was the, the tablets, right? The Ten Commandments. Um, and in it was, yeah, it was stored inside this covenant. And it was right here. And so that's a the practical purpose of... Um, the Ark of the Testimony. It's a storage bin. It's a storage bin. It's like one of those things where you can like sit on it and then like you can like lift it up and from Target. But it was much more holy. You can't just sit on uh, I was waiting for you to be struck when you said sit on it. Um, yeah, we'll talk about the holiness of the Ark in just a minute. But um, oh, yeah, and it had so, a practical purpose. It was contained. The storage unit. Yeah, and so this would have represented for the people that this was God's covenant with them. Uh, he was, in, in essence, he was promising that he was always going to be with his people, that he wasn't going to leave them. Um, that, right, in an ancient world, like, kings would store their uh, treaties with people inside, like, the sanctuary of their God. And so this was what God was doing um, as a testimony that he would be with us. Uh, but another thing that was interesting was that... Um, that the law was provided to give wisdom to the Israelites. Uh, and if you go back to the Garden of Eden, there was another tree uh, that was supposed to give wisdom to people, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so that uh, whether it's through the tree or uh, in the garden or through the tablets that uh, God was giving or providing a way for people to understand wisdom, um, yeah, this obedience. Obedience. Yeah. Great. That's um, why it's significant. See, you misdrew it. It's significant that it's actually like this. Oh yeah, that's what these scribbly lines were. Broken <laughs> marks. They're not whole tablets. <laughs> yes. They're broken. They're broken. Not just because oh accidentally somebody dropped it, but it's significant. Uh 
because the law is broken. Mm-hmm. Exodus 33, right? When Moses comes down from the mountain, he's like breaking it because people are uh, committing idolatry. Um, right? <laughs> uh, but the second reason, uh, the second purpose of the ark was to represent God's presence, right? And so that we, we read it in, right here just now in Numbers. Uh, but that when Moses would go out into war, uh, into battle, a lot of times he would take the ark with him into the battlefield and it would give a morale boost or what it would like symbolize that God was with the Israelites and then they would like win battles, right? Um, or when after the wandering in the desert, they're entering into the promised land, the ark goes before them and the water split, right? And it's this idea that God is going before them. And then they're able to enter. Or when they take over Jericho, they they go seven times around the city. And the ark is with them, right? It's going around. And so, again, it symbolized that God was with them. Uh, but it wasn't like this magical chest, right? If you guys remember in 1 Samuel, um, Eli's uh, children, Hophni and Phinehas, they, like, try to take it into battlefield uh, against the Philistines. And then God, like, strikes it down or, like, strikes the... Israelites down and then the ark is captured um, and so God is like it, it symbolizes God's presence but it's not like we can just like it's a token that we can kind of like take into battle like a lucky charm like a rabbit's foot right um, and the idea that because it's the presence of God it was extremely holy um, so that if you guys remember the story of like how um, after the Philistines have captured the ark they're bringing it back uh, into Israel uh, because of like some stuff that was going on and then people like look into the ark, like 70 people look into it and they all died. Or as they're carrying it, because it has like these poles. As they were carrying it, there's, it's, it began to tip, it says in one story. And this guy named Uzzah or something like that. Uzzah, he like reaches out to like grab it, to steady it. And then he dies immediately uh, because it's so holy. Right? They're not even allowed to touch it. Um, so again, it would have like shown the people that this was something that was like not to be tampered with. It was very holy. It was God's presence. There's that push-pull again, right? Because mm-hmm. here's the presence. He's within the camp. He's with among the people. But don't touch. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here for you. Don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch. And all these things, again, it's it's just all overlaid with gold. Uh, even mean, the poles. I mean, this is why it's all the more amazing when Jesus says, I'm the temple. And if he hugs you. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's supposed to blow our mind. You know, that finally in Christ, God touches us. Uh, let's let's go on uh, to the last point. Well, um, okay. I'm sorry, yes. I'm going to steal some more time from you. The oh, other yeah. thing is, I forget which psalm it is, but it says that the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. And so, it's really an amazing image, because like, let me draw feet. <laughs> These are ugly feet. <laughs> but God is in heaven, right? And his feet rest on the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. and so it's it's that's the imagery, and so it's it's the it's the one place on earth where God is touching the earth and is present present among the people. Yes, um, the last one, um, the cherubim. Can you, Priscilla? Uh, in, the, in the sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits of the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. 
Cool. Thanks. Um, so, sorry, it's just getting kind of messy. Um, but there's like these giant cherubim, and you can see it in the picture, uh, inside the Holy of Holies, right? And we talked about this two weeks ago, but there's cherubim not just inside the Holy of Holies, but it's everywhere. So that um, this detail wasn't added in them. But above the Ark of the Covenant, there's like these little cherubim um, on the cover of the Ark. Um, if you, all over the walls of the temple, there's like pictures of cherubim. And again, this goes, this harkens back to in the Garden of Eden when, when, um, when they were being cast out. This is a garden. They were being cast out <laughs> eastward. Um, God said, if you guys remember, it says like, um, lest man should come and eat the tree of life. Uh, let's let's protect it uh, so that there's like this flaming sword, and then there's cherubim that are like flying around. Cherubim flying around, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's and again it's like protecting the garden, right? Uh, and as you again, even inside the temple, there's all these cherubim imagery, so that you can't just oh this is tabernacle, but inside the temple, there's all this cherubim imagery, so that it would have again shown the people that you know, this is not just a building. This is where God is residing. This is um, and the cherubim. It's like that push pull that Michael was talking about because uh, it was supposed to guard people, uh, guard people from entering in. But then God allows people to enter in under special conditions. Um, so, yes. Oh, and then there's that verse from Genesis, right? I have a question. Yeah. So are cherubims four-legged animals or are they angels? Um, yeah, I think it says like it has like wings, face of a lion, body of a body of a lion, face of a man, or something like that. Um, I don't know. I looked it up. There's there are different inter- people have different opinions. Um, and it looks like a Gryffindor, right? <laughs> no Slytherins in here. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, yeah, we th- we've been talking about this, but the idea that... Oh, sorry, any other questions? Did you ever end it? Okay. So this whole idea, all of these temple furniture and imagery is all supposed to be pointing to Christ. Um, that if, if you read um, that Christ is... He's the animal that was sacrificed. He's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Um, in Revelation 1, uh, when John has a... He has an image, he gets a vision of Jesus... It says that his feet are burnished with bronze, right? That this temple, even though it evoked a sense of permanence, that it wasn't ultimately permanent. That uh, the everlasting kingdom, the everlasting government was going to be fulfilled in Christ. So that he is by his feet uh, that we are permanently saved. Uh, That he's the one that's providing the light. He's the one that's uh, cleansing us. He's the one that enables us to enter into the Holy of Holies. He's the one that tore the veil. Uh, all those things, right? Uh, he's the one that fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. He's the one that uh, is a temple, and by Him we are able to come into His presence, come into um, the throne, to the fellowship of God. And even later on, it talks about, uh, Michael's going to talk more about this, but um, this, the tree of life, it comes back in Revelation, uh, that Jesus is the one that uh, fully satisfied the law so that we uh, who could not obey it, we who are in Adam, could be in Christ and could be saved through him. And so all these things, um, yeah, it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's the gospel. It's it's amazing. Uh, and 
to the degree that we understand. Um, that's why we're studying this, right? It's not just so we can like be like scholarly in our understanding of the Old Testament, but it's we want to see how this tension was being built up for hundreds and thousands of years. This idea that um, God wants to be with His people, yet we can't enter. Uh, that we need to do certain things. Those certain things were done by Jesus, so that we can eat of His flesh and do all these things. Uh, and it's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, it's, a, it's like a giant gospel, you know, analogy building, right? It's like it's amazing. Yeah, it's like every every little thing. It's it's quite amazing. Um, well, let's let's pray, uh, and then we can go worship. Uh, Father, we thank you that you desire to be with your people. Uh, that you have given us, that you had given the temple and the tabernacle to Israel to teach them of your desire to be with them, yet their sinfulness and their need to be separated from you. But we thank you that in Christ all those barriers have been fulfilled and have been broken down uh, and that we can come and freely worship you. Help us as we go into worship to do so with enjoyment, with uh, bringing you glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.